It has all the sermons that are on the web. You can find all of that. It has some resources that are available. If you are not on Faith Life but would like to be, that can be arranged. You just have to send me an email and say, I've lost my password. Will you send me another link? Or I never received it and I will send it to you. Usually within an hour, hour and a half, the sermon is on faith life. It may take a day or two, depending on where our webmaster is, whether she's at home or visiting somewhere, for it to show up on the web. That is on our website itself. But it can be found on Faith Life same afternoon. Just some of it depends on processing time and how many people are downloading sermons or uploading sermons. And if I'm real quick and able to get it done quickly, sometimes the process is quick, sometimes it's very slow. You just never know, but it will appear there. And then the past sermons are there as well. Now, I want to thank Kelly, because Kelly's taken over doing the presentation, and she's got a great learning curve, but she is really doing a great job, so thank you, Kelly, for that. It's a, it's a great relief. Now, two questions, which means we're going home in a big hurry today. <laughs> There are actually more questions that are sitting out there, but I thought that Lisa and Ernie were gone this weekend, so I didn't answer any of Lisa's questions. I put in one of Vince's questions because I didn't realize Vince was going to be gone. So his question is going to be answered, and I gave him a brief answer before, but now we'll talk about it a little bit more and then the other question was from John. And it's a great question. So we'll answer that a little bit more fully than I answered when John asked it. N.T. Wright writes, Where the story is to end, not with us going to heaven, as in many hymns and prayers, but with new creation. Can you explain this further? I hope so. N.T. Wright is one of the few theologues that I agree with in most part. I don't always agree with everything, but as I've told you before, I don't always agree with me. <laughs> Or I might agree with me now, but I didn't agree with me then. Or what I wrote then, I may not agree with now. But N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham, an Anglican priest and bishop, a very fine scholar. And when I read N.T. Wright, I said, thanks be to God, somebody who's in the mainstream of theology with whom I can agree. So we have to lay a little bit of groundwork here. 
if you scour the scriptures, you will find absolutely no reference to the concept of the soul being immortal. I urge you, search, scrounge, look, look for it carefully. You will not find it. The Christian church has been teaching the immortality of the soul since about the time of Augustine, give or take. Why is this important? The Christian church adopted the teaching of Plato. Plato said that the soul is immortal and the body will give up. Now the Gnostics also taught that the soul is immortal. So you've got to get rid of the body so that your soul can then have a good time in the afterlife. Plato believed in an ideal world. He did believe in a heaven of sorts where there is a pattern of all things. There is a perfect table in heaven that serves as the pattern for every table on earth. It's just an imitation of the one there. It's a good thing to know because if you've been trying to make the perfect table, Plato says, if you could just see the one in heaven, that's the perfect one. And the rest of it, you're just kind of making up for yourself out of your own imagination, so don't worry about it. Plato taught that the soul was immortal. Again, there is nowhere in scripture that that is taught. Yet we've been teaching it in the Christian church. Then we have the people that have been teaching for seven to eight hundred years that hell is eternal, goes on forever, and that the wicked go to hell because their soul is immortal and there they are tormented forever and ever, world without end, amen. And the righteous, the good folks, go to heaven, where they get to dwell in the clouds and play their harps, because that's what I've always wanted to do, is play a harp while sitting on a cloud. What's happened is that we've distorted the scriptures. And we've distorted them in terrible ways. And then in the Christian church, we've taken advantage of it to tell people, look, if you don't believe in Jesus now, you're going to dwell in hell forever. You have a choice, heaven or hell. Choose Jesus, you get heaven. Don't choose Jesus, you get hell. It's a simplistic approach to a truth. But again, it's a simplistic approach. The scriptures teach something very clearly. Eternal life is in Jesus. When we receive Jesus, our lives are hidden in him. And in him, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, we have eternal life. 
in him, as Paul teaches in Ephesians, we are seated in heavenly places. All these things are ours in him. There will come a day when these things are ours. But that day is not yet. Until then, we dwell in him, and he dwells in us. And because he dwells in us, we have the gift of eternal life. Those who are not in Jesus do not have the gift of eternal life. Now, if we go back to Genesis at the fall, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, remember what happened? God came down and said, I've got to throw them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. If they were going to live forever, why did God need to throw them out of the garden in the first place? If they already had immortality in and of themselves, who cares whether they ate of the tree of life because they had been created immortal? But no, there is no indication they were created immortal. They were created without the gift of immortality. Do I think they would have had the gift of immortality if they had been faithful to God? Yes, absolutely. But they were not faithful. So God says they have to be pushed out of the garden and I put cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to the garden so they cannot enter and live then as sinful human beings eternally. Now, at the right time, God sent his son into the world so that the just would die for the unjust. So that we could have eternal life in him, so that in him we could have forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, the First Testament, there is no indication. There are a couple of hints about something happening after death. But everybody knows that when you die, you go to the place of the dead. It's called Sheol. Nobody knows anything about it. Everybody goes there. Good, bad, ugly, different, fat, thin, male, female, slave, free, it doesn't matter. When you die, you go to Sheol. There you are. What do you know about it? Nothing. And then there is this strange little comment from the psalm. If I go to Sheol, I can't run away from God. Because even in Sheol, he's there. This little hint. But that's all it is. When they came out of Persia, they had a more well-developed sense of there is something that's going to happen after death. But it's still only a marginally more developed. If you look at the writings of Isaiah, Isaiah gets us as close as anybody can be. What does Isaiah tell us? That no more will there be an infant that lives but a few days that somebody who dies at a hundred will be thought to be cursed. This is Isaiah's concept of a marvelous place that God is creating. But he cannot conceive 
of a place without doubt. Them. Jesus. And Jesus tells the thief on the cross, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Now the question is, was Jesus in paradise that day? Because he descended to the place of the dead. If we try to sort out his divinity from his humanity, good luck to you, there is still not a good response to that. But the thief on the cross knows. Now there's something else that happens in Matthew, the 28th chapter, that to me is remarkable, and we kind of overlook it because the story makes us uncomfortable. Nobody reports on this but Matthew, that at the death of Jesus, graves were opened, and the saints came out and walked around Jerusalem. Which saints? Who knows? How many? Who knows? Why this story? Because I think Matthew is declaring that with the death of Jesus, everything is now different. Before Jesus, when you died, you were dead. That doesn't mean you can't be resurrected and then be with the Lord. Doesn't mean that at all. It just means before Jesus, everybody goes to Sheol, the place of death. There are a couple of marked exceptions. Elijah, Enoch, Moses. We know about Moses from the book of Jude. That the archangel and Satan argued over the body of Moses. Satan always loses in the face of the archangel. The body of Moses got to be in heaven. Enoch is taken there without dying. Elijah is taken there without dying. They are the kind of precursors that tell us that while the Old Testament picture is not filled out, there is something more than death as the end of all things in the Old Testament. But it's not filled out. It's like hearing a good fairy tale, but without ever hearing the ending, and they lived happily ever after. So in the Old Testament, you get everything except they lived happily ever after. Jesus everything changes. He breaks the power of sin and death. Period. End of story. If you are in him, sin and death have no power over you. No power at all. They cannot have power over you. Why? Because your life is hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has lost the battle over you because you were in him. Jesus. Death has no power over you. Sin has no power over you. The grave has no power over you. So what happens to Christians when they die? Their bodies stop working. Just like everybody else. But if you are
are in Jesus, because you are a Christian, because you're a follower of Jesus, what happens to your soul? The part of you that makes you different and important and interesting and unusual. Nothing in life, nothing in death can separate you from God's love and our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. That means not one thing. You move into the presence of the Lord. Which brings us to the next question. Where is that? Where God dwells. We give it a fancy name. Heaven. And then we end the story there. But that's not where the scriptures end the story. The scriptures don't end the story there. If you look in the book of Revelation, something remarkable happens, and that is that the Lord returns, brings with him, 1 Thessalonians 4th chapter, those who have died in Jesus. Those who have died in Jesus, guess where their bodies are? In the ground. Their bodies have been raised. And then, of course, those who are living when Jesus returns, everybody is scooped up to be with the Lord, and then he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. You will not be living in heaven forever. Don't even think about it. You're going to have a body. I'm going to have a body. All of God's children are going to have a body. What's its shape going to be like? Probably something like the body of Jesus. Glorified. Something like. That is the teaching of Scripture. Do you want immortality that is only found in Jesus Christ? Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, I believe it's 1 Timothy 6, he says, God alone is immortal. Pretty clear teaching. You aren't immortal, I'm not immortal, but in Jesus, we have immortality, because it's His. But one day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, our mortal bodies will be transformed. And that which is mortal will put on immortality. That which is perishable will put on imperishability. That which is corrupt will put on incorruption. That is the day when God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And then we will be here. This world is not my home. But the world will be my home. And John seems to indicate that God will make this earth his dwelling place and heaven and earth will be united on the new earth. How does that happen? I don't know. I tell you, friends, we get into trouble when we invent answers for questions. How does Jesus have two natures? Well, I can explain it. There are lots and lots of different ways to explain how Jesus can have two natures. Don't bother trying to explain it. We'll never figure it out. And whatever human approach we, we come up with to how Jesus can have two natures is going to be wrong. Why? Because it looks like human thinking. I don't know. But the Bible teaches clearly Jesus had a divine nature and a human nature, and still does. 
Don't ask me how. Don't ask me how God is going to unite heaven and earth. I don't know it is not my business. My business is to live for Jesus here and now. That's my business. That's your business. That's the business of God's people. And then to look to the day when we are in his presence and then when we are in his presence eternally because he will dwell in our midst and we will dwell with him in a recreated earth where there is no more sin, no more destruction, no more death. All of the things that we've come to associate with evil will be done away with forever. This is why N.T. Wright can say the story does not end with us going to heaven. I don't know where heaven is. You don't know where heaven is. Nobody knows where heaven is. My guess is it's a different dimension. So what? That's my guess. The only thing I can say for sure is heaven is where God dwells. And that when I pass through death into life, I will dwell in the presence of the Lord wherever he is. And then ultimately, I will be here with a recreated body to dwell in his presence forever on a recreated earth. Number two. If I confused you more, I'm so sorry with number one. But trying to explain the realities when we've had so many centuries of getting it wrong because we adopted the belief of the non-Christian Plato, it's hard to undo all the centuries that we've been teaching it wrong. If you die apart from Jesus, you die apart from Jesus. Do I believe you go straight to hell and burn there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? No, I don't. Do I think you will ultimately be destroyed? Yes. Because God is a God of justice. And since there is no immortal soul apart from Jesus, it would mean that God would have to sustain life in order to torment life forever and ever. And that's not the scriptural view of God. We'll talk about that again some other time. You can agree with me or disagree on the, whether hell is an actual burning place or whether it goes on forever and ever. That's not the basis of my salvation. The basis of my salvation is my life is hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ because he died to sin, to death, for me. And my life is hidden in him. Now, Jesus asked God to forgive those who crucified him because they did not know what they were doing. Were they actually forgiven? Could they have been forgiven later if they repented and accepted Jesus as Lord? Yes, they could have been forgiven. No, they were not forgiven. Peter says something very unique in his sermon. And you folks killed Jesus. And he 
calls on that audience to repent of their sin. They could be forgiven. All they had to do was repent of their sin and call on him for salvation. Judas could have been forgiven if he had called on Jesus and waited for Jesus to forgive him. He couldn't wait. He punished himself. He knew what he deserved, so he gave himself the appropriate punishment. But Jesus died for every single sin if people will just call on him. So what is Jesus doing? First of all, Jesus sets the standard for us. We need to forgive as we have been forgiven. And Jesus, in his words, is really telling the folks that are killing him, you can be forgiven by calling on God. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is offering forgiveness and all they need to receive it is to receive his gift. Sad bleeding. They don't receive his gift. We need to freely offer forgiveness. That doesn't mean, by the way, that there is no justice. You can forgive someone that has done an evil deed to you, but that does not mean that they should not be subject to justice. They should be, if nothing else, to prevent them from doing another evil to another person in this world. Forgive them. But it doesn't let people get off scot-free. I can forgive someone here for kicking me every time they see me. I can forgive them over and over and over and over and over again. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to keep walking by where they can kick me. I really don't want to keep offering forgiveness. And if what they're doing is illegal, then it's a good thing to call the police, make the police report, forgive them, whether or not they receive that forgiveness is a different issue, then they're subject to the justice system. Jesus offers forgiveness to set a bottle for us. And you will notice who else did it early on in the book of Acts. The first martyr, Stephen. Stephen prays as they are killing him, Lord, do not lay up this sin on their now he knows that God is going to lay up the sin on their account. But remember who is in the crowd. Paul. He's holding the coats. He's in agreement. Paul is not a nice guy. Paul is zealous for the Lord. Paul wants to make sure that this upstart group of people are done away with. Because they're dragging people away from serving the true God. Paul needs the forgiveness. Stephen says, forgive them, Lord. And Paul ultimately relies on the forgiveness that God offers. What an incredible thing. Jesus said to his disciples, no, don't just forgive 70 times. 
forgive 70 times then. In other words, keep forgiving. Whether or not the person receives the forgiveness is not our issue. When we forgive, we let go of the need for vengeance. And we leave that to the Lord and we leave that to the justice system. We need to be released from that call for vengeance that's built into our system. This is one of the things that I like about the Psalms. David says over and over, Oh Lord, if I have my way, I'll throw their babies against rocks. I'll cut their heads off. I'll stab them. I'll slay them. I'll fling them off a cliff. I'll do anything that I can. And by the way, Lord, I'm, now that I've said that, I'm done. I can leave it with you. David is so real in his prayer life. He can say to God, give it my way, this is what I'm going to do to him. But we don't find those instances of David grabbing the middle. He just doesn't do it. Why? Because he's delivered that stuff up to God. He can rely on God to do what God should do. Because he's willing to forgive. Because he has been forgiven. That's the point for us as well. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. Therefore, we need to be willing to forgive. Whether or not the person receives the forgiveness is a different thing. There's a two-way street here. I can say I'm giving you my new car, but I ain't going to give you my keys. The only way you're going to get my new car is to get my keys and to receive that as a gift. By the way, the finance company will not appreciate it if you drive out with my new car. If somebody offers you a piece of bread or one of the nice goodies back there, says, here, have a goodie. And you say, oh, isn't it nice? Thank you very much. Have you enjoyed the goodie? No. You got to pick it up. You got to put it in your mouth. Chewing is helpful. Swallowing it is good. It's the same thing with forgiveness. If I offer forgiveness to somebody and they say, hmm, hmm. I'm not changing my lifestyle. I'm not doing anything. What I did was fine. What you are doing is bad. So I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what. They do not stand forgiven. But you are released from the anger and the vengeance that might otherwise control your life because you are allowing sin purchase in your life because you would not forgive. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in Jesus we are forgiven. That in Jesus we have eternal life. Thank you that in him we have nothing to fear for the future or the present or the past. Because our lives are hidden in him. Thank you that we are already with you in heavenly places because we are with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for Jesus who gave us the example of what it means to forgive, to release the anger and the vengeance and the call for justice to you. For you are the righteous king who knows everything. May we be people who forgive, who offer forgiveness, and then pray for our enemies and those who despitefully use us. That Jesus would be glorified in everything. And we praise you in his name. Amen. And David, since I'm about out of energy,